Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to page 922. It's the book of Daniel, chapter 1, uh, 922. Last week we talked about really how big and threatening uh, the, the ancient empire of Babylon was to the Jews, to people in the, in the city of Jerusalem. We talked about how Babylon had attacked the city, uh, had taken away like the best and brightest of Jewish society, and then Babylon was now kind of working real intentionally to Babylonize the people that they had captured. Basically, they wanted to make these Jews so like morally, culturally, spiritually watered down that, that they wouldn't look like Jews anymore at all. They just look like Babylonians. And they're not enemies anymore, right? They're just one of you. And uh, we talked about how like the logical thing, like what we want to do in a situation like that when we feel like a, maybe a threatened minority, we want to resist. We want to fight. We want to like close ourselves off, separate, um, and like get ready to battle, to, you know, to fight for our survival. Um, and there were prophets back in that day that said that. But then in Jeremiah 29, we talked about this, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah, he's a prophet, and he addresses all these false prophets, and he says, no. Like, our task in exile is not to run away uh, from the empire, it's not to hide from the city, but he says, we gotta, we got to pray for the city, we got to work for the city, we got to work for its uh, peace, for its shalom, for its flourishing. Um. And I mentioned that, that there were these, this guy Daniel last week and some of his friends who really, like they really represented this kind of engaging with the city, not retreating from it. So these were some of the guys who were taken, some of the Jews taken from Jerusalem, brought to Babylon. And uh, Daniel uh, actually became like a leading advisor to the king of Babylon, like one of the very top people in the government. And, and here's the incredible thing about Daniel. Um, he was completely surrounded by this Babylonian culture. Right? So it was like pluralistic, and it was really sexually confused, it was morally real loose. And you'd expect Daniel would have to have like lost all of his faith convictions to work in like an environment like that day in and day out. That's what you'd expect. But then the book of Daniel gives us, uh, and really gives to anybody who's living in exile, these three surprising, and I think they're meant to be encouraging stories about how Daniel and his friends did not lose their the convictions of their faith at all. And so in the first story, uh, Daniel and his friends, they're, they're basically, they're like at Babylon University, so they're, they're being taught all about like Babylonian language and culture and literature, um, but the only thing to eat in the cafeteria at Babylon University is non-kosher food. Uh, and foods that faithful Jews like Daniel and his friends uh, weren't supposed to eat. And it sounds kind of silly to us, like the, you'd have a restriction like that, but it was really an important part of, of their faith. And so Daniel asks like the head chef, like if they could just eat like veggies instead. Uh, and so we turn to chapter 1, verse 10. So he makes the request, but the official refused to do what Daniel asked for. And he said, you know, I'm afraid of the king. He's my master, and he has decided what you and your three friends must eat and drink. And you got to notice, like, the king decided what they would eat. Um, and the king is not stupid. 
the fact that Jews have like a really special diet, that would have been no secret to, to the king. The king knew that he was like pushing his culture on them. It was like the point of what he was doing. Um, he knew that he was challenging them like right at this pressure point. And so Daniel asked, he's like, can you just give us some space? Um, like just a little exception for us. Um, and it's a risky thing to ask, right? I mean, the king decided this. And, and the head chef, he realizes that. He's nervous. And so he asked, you know, why should the king see you guys all looking worse than the other young men who like, are at this university who are the same age as you? Um, like when he sees how you look because you're just eating veggies all week and like you're all like emaciated and, and like skinny and all the rest, like he's going he's gonna to kill me. And so Daniel spoke to one of the guards and Daniel said to him, please uh, test us for 10 days. Please test us for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat. Give us only water to drink. And then just compare us to the young men who eat the king's food. See how we look. And after that, like, do what you want to. And I want you to notice something because we're talking today about like, how to engage with the culture around us without losing our core identity. Right? That's what we're talking about today. Notice that Daniel is like really gentle. He says, please, please let us. He's gentle, but he's insistent. Uh, he's respectful. So throughout the book of Daniel, whenever he's interacting with the king, he calls him king. Whenever he's referring to the king, he calls him king. Uh, he even at one point says, oh king, live forever. Right? Like, he's very respectful, but he's also firm. He's, he's firm on his principles, but he's not a jerk about it. Um, and I think that's important. Okay? And then we read verse 14. The guard agreed, and he tested them for ten days. And after the ten days, they looked healthy and well-fed. In fact, they looked better than any of the young men who ate the king's food. Okay? Second story, this is chapter 3. Uh, I'm going quick here. These are really long stories. They're, they're fun to read. You should read them on your own. Uh, Chapter 3 focuses on Daniel's friends. Okay, same deal. They're Jews like him. They're working in the king's service. And the king of Babylon sets up this big image of gold. Like it's this real big thing, like bigger than our church. And everybody's supposed to worship it, he says. Like we're going to play some music. And when the music plays, everybody's got to bow down and worship it. And then he adds, oh, by the way, and if you don't worship when the music plays, I'm going to put you in a fiery furnace. We're going to kill you. <laughs> um, and you see the conflict right away for these Jews, right? What are the first two commandments? Don't have any gods before me and, and don't make an image and worship it. <laughs> like one and two. Like again, like Nebuchadnezzar, he's like getting them right, right where it hurts. Um, and then, of course, like in no time, somebody rats on these friends because they're not worshiping the, the image. And so the king calls him in. He's real mad. He's like, why won't you worship this golden image that I set up? And you've got to remember, this is a, this is a pluralistic society. Uh, so, like, no one God is better than any other. Like, worship, like, really whoever you like. Like, every Babylonian kind of knew, like, it doesn't really matter, like, who you're worshiping at any given time. Uh, but Daniel's friends are like, no, no, like, it does matter. It does matter. They said, listen, we believe, we believe that our God's going to rescue us from this furnace. But then they said this. They said, you know, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't rescue us, we're still not going to compromise. So they get thrown in this furnace. 
They're left to die, but somehow the flames never hurt them. Third story, real similar to the second one. Uh, this is chapter 6. The, this time the, the, the law in Babylon is that for 30 days, you can only worship Nebuchadnezzar. It's like a special festival for Nebuchadnezzar. Only going to worship him. And of course, Daniel, he gets caught praying to his God. It's a clear violation. He gets thrown into this den with these lions. You've probably heard this story before. Uh, and a day later, they pull him out, and he doesn't have a scratch on him. Like these amazing stories, right? Uh, taken in exile, they're surrounded by this culture, pressuring them like not to take their faith so seriously, just go ahead and cut some corners, and yet every time, faithful. Like whatever the cost. It's incredible. It's meant to be inspiring. And yet you have to ask, like, how'd they do it? Like, how did they do that? How did they stick to their principles? How did they engage this culture so closely? I mean, these guys were like top government officials. Like, how did they engage this culture so closely and not end up with like this like squishy, like wishy-washy kind of faith? Um, well, the book of Daniel doesn't really say. Um, the book of Daniel is more concerned that this happened and less concerned with like explaining exactly why it happened. Um, you know, there's some places where we read about Daniel praying. He prays a lot in the book. I'm sure that has something to do with it. Um, there are other places where we see him worshiping God. I'm sure that's related. But practically, like it's it's kind of thin on like how these guys like stood their ground. So I want to look at another passage. It's addressing a really similar situation. This is Philippians chapter 3. So it's page 1231 in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. So this is the New Testament. This is many years later. Babylon is like wiped out. Um, Daniel and his friends, they're long gone. Um, but there's a new power in the world. It's the Roman Empire. And just like Babylon, Rome is powerful. They're persuasive. They're real persistent. Like they're pluralistic. They're kind of sexually confused. They're, they're, they're morally loose. And, and for these Christians, so now it's like new Christians in the world, they're just like this small little, almost like a cult at this time. They're just like really, really small faith. Um, and it's becoming really difficult for them to remain faithful in the face of all this pressure. Like there's lots of times when it would just be way easier for them to just cut some corners in their faith. And then uh, this pastor, Paul, gives them this famous line. He says, you know, there are people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their stomach, which is like they, they just do whatever they want. And their glory is in their shame. Like, basically, they, they brag about the very things that they should be ashamed of. Their minds, he says, are on earthly things. Or some translations say their minds are only on earthly things. But Paul says Christians are different. This is so important. He says, their minds are on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And that word citizenship uh, in Greek, it has this idea of uh, like a colony. Uh, like almost like an outpost of like a foreign nation. So I almost thought about it like, uh, it's kind of an informal colony, but like a Chinatown. 
in a big city like New York. Um, so it's surrounded by this enormous city, but like within Chinatown, it's, it's kind of a colony, right? Where, where at least it used to be like this, where people like spoke Chinese and ate Chinese and, and the culture was Chinese and the writing on the signs is Chinese. And it's like right in the middle of New York City. Paul's saying, listen, we, we Christians, we're like residents of Chinatown. We're almost like, a, almost like a subculture, different language, different culture. It says, and our colony, like our Chinatown, is a church. It's the people around you. Like this is, our, this is our Chinatown. Which means that the world beyond our neighborhood often speaks a different language than we speak here. So like, you look at the world around us, and, and one thing that I think has a mix of, of good and bad in it um, is like in, our, in the culture beyond our neighborhood, like the individual is really king. Um, and, and sometimes this is taken to an extreme, right? So we say that like, no one can question a person's like chosen self-expression. Like their worldview... Their morality, like, as long as it's all just consensual, it's all up to the individual. Everything's up to the individual. Everybody can kind of have it their own way. So we tell everybody, find your own way. And then we wonder, like, why there's never been a society with more loneliness than ours. Or, like, we constantly, this is in advertisements especially, right? We tell this story to ourselves. That buying something is going to make you happy. That like there's some new technology, it's going to like you're going to get it, and it's just going to like make everything right again. And so we tell people that they're always just like this one purchase or like one upgrade away from like contentment. And then we wonder why everybody's so dissatisfied all the time. Like we're surrounded by this culture that, that speaks, I think, a different language, which doesn't mean it doesn't have beauty. <laughs> Um, there's so much that's beautiful in this world. And, and there's grace, I think, all over the place. Even in people who don't speak our language at all. But, but for all of its beauty and even grace, I think this world can often, in subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways, can really uh, challenge uh, and even be hostile to like some of the most important truths that like define our little neighborhood. For instance, the truth that we're not our own. So we don't define our reality. We don't define the good life. We're not our own. We belong to God. Um, or the truth that our feelings, right, however sincere they are, that they too are messed up by sin. Like that just as we can't only think our way to truth, we can't also feel our way to truth. Sometimes, sometimes feelings are a part of what get us there, but our feelings, they're not a perfect moral compass. So we believe that to get to truth, we need God to show it to us. And claims like these, they're not, they're not just a different language from our culture. But I think in a lot of ways, these claims confront, I think, some of like, the very core assumptions of our culture. 
And so some of you tell me, like, it can feel confusing to spend all day in workplaces or classrooms that are speaking this language of the world. And you spend a lot of time in places that seem to really challenge some of the very core Christian claims. Right? Um, and, you know, we spend hours in workplaces like that, and hours in classrooms like that. And, and for some of you, you, you say, you know, your faith, it is just, it's constantly, like, regularly being, being challenged. Um, subtle ways, and, and sometimes not. And so, and then we add to that, we spend, like, five more hours every day, like, in front of screens, right? So, like, TV or movies or, or the web, like, soaking in, like, more of these messages, and in worldviews that have some good in them, but often that are very different from our own faith. Worldviews that have very different ideas about like what makes a good life, or like what makes a life worth living, or what makes something right and wrong. So you got eight hours at work, and then you got five hours with screens. We're talking like 13 hours a day. Like 80 hours a week. You know, being around, soaking in, like a, a culture that's maybe foreign to us, like a Babylonian culture. And some of that's good, right? Some of that's going to be enlightening and it's going to be important. But, but then we think like showing up to church like an hour a week, like, oh, that'll be enough. Like, well, we won't lose our, our distinctive culture. Like, we won't get swept away. We won't compromise. And I get it, right? Like Jeremiah 29, like engage the city, like appreciate the beauty and its culture. It's like, yes, yes, yes. But 80 to 1? That does not sound like a very promising proportion. And I don't usually bring this up. I, maybe I've never brought this up, but I went to Calvin College, um, which is a, it's a Christian college here in town, and it's, it is a Jeremiah 29 kind of place. Um, I was taught, like, don't be afraid of the world. Uh, there's truth in the world, there's beauty in the world, we need to engage the world, transform it, make it more beautiful, make it more true. And I'm so glad somebody showed me how important Jeremiah 29 is to like the big picture of what God is doing. It's really important. But as I reflect on my education now, um, I think it tended to be awfully optimistic about how much I would be shaping the world. And, and kind of naive about how much the world was really going to be shaping me. Um, so there's lots of talk about engaging this world, but I hardly remember anybody ever mentioning the colony. Um, like, I remember we talked about the church, and it was like this thing that we needed to fix. But I don't remember it being like this community that like could give us footing, or like that would help like give us an anchor. But now, like, I am more convinced than ever that this colony is so important. Remember, it's not a separating colony. It's, it's an engaging colony. But, like, when we spend all week, like, swimming in the stories of Babylon, like, we need to come together and, like, remind ourselves, like, God's stories, right? Like, we need to pick out and we need to expose, like, the half-truths that we hear all week long. And we got to, like, reclaim God's truth. Like this is where we come and then we worship our true hope and put aside all the false hopes that we're attracted to all week long. This is where we learn that we don't live for ourselves. We live for others. We, we deny ourselves. 
And I think if we are to have any hope of remaining faithful in the face of Babylon, we're going to need our colony. So there's a book I read in preparation for this series. It's called Resident Aliens. And it's by two Christian pastors and professors at Duke in North Carolina. And their thoughts are all over my sermon today. Uh, But they tell this story that I just have not been able to shake. It's 1986. Um, uh, The U.S. had been bombing Libya uh, for a while now. and, And students were debating whether this was morally right or not. And it sounded familiar to me, so I was in college during the build-up to the Iraq War in 03. And like I remember, like, it seemed like there were really only two options. Uh, you were either a Republican who thought, like, of course this bombing was justified and, and we should trust the president, um, or you were a Democrat and you thought the bombing was terrible and we should trust the UN. Like, that seemed like basically the two options. So anyway, it's, it's 1986. Students are debating the invasion of Libya. And one of the students asked one of the professors what he thought a Christian response would be. Basically, like, should Christians be Republicans or Democrats? And the pastor said this. He said, you know, a Christian response might be this. Tomorrow morning, the Christian churches in this country would announce that we are sending a thousand missionaries to Libya to preach the gospel and to witness to peace in Jesus. It's like a crazy idea, right? Like, I mean, it's, it, they'd all get killed. It's stupid. It's naive, right? And so one of the students sneered at the professor. He's like, you can't do that. And he's like, well, why not? Like, why can't we do that? And the student's like, well, for one thing, like, it's illegal to travel to Libya right now. Like, the president put a ban on travel to Libya. And, and the professor replied, he said, you're right. We can't send a thousand missionaries to Libya. But not because of President Reagan. He said, we can't go there because we no longer have a church that produces people who could do something so bold. We no longer have a church that produces people who could do something so bold. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the colony needing to be the colony. Being something altogether different acting in ways that don't even compute in the world. The reason we engage the the kingdoms of the world like Babylon, the reason we love its people and work for its peace, it is to witness to a greater kingdom. right? A kingdom of peace and a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of truth that will not end. right? It is a witness to the kingdom of God. We're so surrounded by this culture I think we've lost our imaginative edge. Um, we don't see the kingdom of God anymore. Uh, we just fall into lockstep like with Republican talking points or Democrat talking points. But why not send a thousand missionaries? I mean, why not risk our lives to love the world that well? Why not? I imagine it's it's because the world we don't expect would much love us back. If we step out there and we love the world so boldly, if we if we take our faith that seriously and take it into the world, 
We may love the world. It may not love us back. And do we really want to take that risk? You know, I believe that as, as a colony of exiles, our primary task uh, is the formation of people in this community who follow Jesus so closely, uh, who know Him so well and love His kingdom so much that they can see beyond like Republican and Democrat to a third way, to Jesus, right? The, the one whose greatest act of love for the world was also his death. Um, he loved the world. The world did not receive him. But it didn't stop him. Right? Like sometimes faithful living, it is costly. And, and this is the place, this is the community where we prepare to pay the price. Where we make paying the price seem even normal. I mean, remember Daniel and his friends, when they took a stand, what's so incredible to me, they were willing to die. And these were like, these were the top people, right? Like, they had very promising futures. They were smart. They were successful. They were brilliant. They had the world ahead of them. They were willing to die to witness to God's kingdom. I think as we engage this world, as, as we love this world and serve it, I think sometimes we're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be excluded. We may seek to bless the world according to our faith and, and find that it does not bless us back. You know, sometimes we act like our greatest witness as Christians is going to be our political power. Like we're one election away from, from getting back to Jerusalem. We're, like we'd win everyone over if we just had a persuasive enough argument or, or a good enough candidate. But we have a Savior whose greatest moment of witness was His death. He died to save the people who were killing Him. So what if our greatest witness, as people who follow that Savior, is not our political power or our persuasive arguments, but what if our greatest witness is our willingness to love this world even if it doesn't love us back? to follow the kingdom way, and to trust God, even if it hurts, even if it's costly. I mean, we, we like to think, you know, that of course, you know, in this country, you know, you can be a Christian, and you can have a comfortable life and a good job, but like, what if you couldn't? What if it cost you? Daniel and his friends, they knew the risk. And they were willing to pay the price. Jesus certainly knew the risk. He paid the price. What about us? Will, will we keep the faith? Will we return even hate with love? Even if it's costly? Even if there's a price to pay? Let's pray together.